So we are in the last, this is the last week of our, of our uh, vision series uh, for 2021. We start out the year kind of reminding ourselves what it is we're doing. Why is God, why are we a church? Why have we planted a church and become a church? And um, what is our role in being a witness to the culture that God has placed us in? And so uh, we've been doing a quick series <clears throat> in the beginning of the year titled A Faithful Witness, which helps us, or I hope, is helping us to understand uh, better the call of the church to be a witness in the world. And throughout this whole series, there have been some recurring themes, right? Recurring themes of how we are so really tempted to trust in our own plan and our own power to accomplish the mission of God, uh, when oftentimes we discover to our dismay that it's really our mission and our plan that we are trying to accomplish with our power that we are has been masquerading in our minds as God's plan. And so the, the point and the hope is that we reestablish what God's plan is, what God's methods are, uh, and trust ourselves wholly to his power and protection as we trust that he is going to do what he's promised to do in the world through us. And so today we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 26, which is the, the arrest of Jesus in the garden. One of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, just just uh, there's so many subtleties in it. I'm going to bring in some of John and some of the other gospels, but we're going to read as our primary text from Matthew chapter 26, 47 through 56. So if you are able, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is God's inerrant word. Now, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And so they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for over the course of history, you've recorded and saved for us in your scriptures uh, details about how you, are un, how you are unfolding the plan of salvation in the world and the mighty power <clears throat> that you have in unfolding that plan and the total ability of God's people to trust in you and entrust ourselves to you and to your power. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that to see uh, the power of Jesus, to see the greater power that he is using 
to accomplish your ends. And we pray, Lord, that we would trust you. We would trust your plan. We would trust your power. And we pray that you would work powerfully through us, Lord, to accomplish your mission in the world. So help us, Lord. Help us with the power of your spirit. <clears throat> illuminate our minds. Help us to have minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise us to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I have this idea, this, this dream that I've never done because I'm not kind of worried about how controversial it might be. <laughs> so, you know, if I'm kind of balking at it, it must be controversial, right? But I have this idea, I've had this idea for a long time to to, to a, a, a Christian, like a, a study class, a Christian study class called uh, The Theology of Breaking Bad, which of course is based on the series Breaking Bad. And the reason I want to do that is because I think the underlying theme that's, that's moving all through that whole series is um, the underlying theme is is what... We, the high-minded theologians might call utilitarian ethics, which means in, in, in common everyday language, we would say the ends justify the means. That's just a, that's a, a pithy statement that we have come up with that says that as long as if you're serving the good, if you're trying to accomplish the good, it doesn't really matter what means you use to get there as long as you get to the good. That is, in a nutshell, utilitarian ethics. Uh, and what we call, on an everyday basis, we would say, the end justifies the means. Doesn't matter what you do so much as what you accomplish is good. And so, in the series, Walter White, the, the hero, the anti-hero of the series, knows he's dying from cancer and desperately wants to provide for his family after his death. And it seems to him that the, the, the quickest, fastest, and most profitable way to do that is to use his skill as a chemist to manufacture illegal drugs and sell them. Uh, and then the rest of the story is one of the best dramatic explorations of what really happens in life when you abide by that principle of the end or the, the means justifying the ends. And I think it would be a good study because that's what we're awash in in the culture, whether we know it or not, that's the message we get from everywhere, pretty much from everywhere. Uh, it's the prevailing ethic. It's lurking behind the scenes of everything from politics to entertainment to provincial wisdom. Uh, the end justifies the means. And as always, what the culture believes tends to creep in to the church and we can begin to accept it uh, unwittingly. And so uh, that's... That's the reality we live in. That's the truth. And it causes us to be susceptible, uh, <clears throat> in particular, to one ancient pestilence, at least a thousand years old in the church, that we are particularly blind to in our culture. <clears throat> and to keep everything simple, I'm going to call that ancient pestilence, I'm going to call that the way of the sword. And by that, I don't mean just military power. I'm a big fan of military power and martial arts used rightly. I'm not, we are not against those things to protect life. Uh, uh, but what I do mean is any worldly power that the church takes up 
with the good intention of using it to proclaim the gospel. And that might be military power, and it has been. Might be celebrity power, and it is. And then I'll contrast that as best I can with with the way of the cross or the otherworldly power that God has given us to proclaim the gospel, which is a slower way and is often a more painful way, but ultimately it's a more powerful way. And so why, why is it so important to have a clear grasp on these two ways to understand them, to understand how they work and to understand how one is biblical and one is not? The first reason is because the way of the sword nullifies the gospel. I'm kind of a stickler for words, so I spent about an hour and a half thinking about nullify. Is that the best word? You know how it goes. Obliterates, defaces, distorts. You know, you get what I'm saying. The way of the cross nullifies the gospel. What does that mean? Um, One of my friends, Vince Larson from New City Church, Last, uh, earlier in the month, he posted a bunch of quotes from a theologian named Henry Newman from a book called In the Name of Jesus. And I, two of them jumped out at me. They, they were together. He said this, Henry Newman says this, one of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power. What is he talking about? Is he talking about how people like use the church and hijack the church to accomplish their own evil ends? That happens, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something specific. He's saying the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, having power, provided it is used in the service of God and your fellow human beings is a good thing. And the the minute I read that quote, there was another scene popped into my mind of Gandalf talking to Frodo in the Shire when Frodo has tried to offer the ring of power to Gandalf. And Gandalf says, he says what? He says, don't tempt me, Frodo. He says, I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I'd want to use this ring from a desire to do good. But through me, it would wield a power too great and terrible to imagine. In the same way, Galadriel, she said, when Frodo offered her the ring, she said, instead of a dark lord, you would set up a queen and all would love me and despair. What were they saying? What is Tolkien trying to uncover, right? Well, my... My Tolkien sources, my token, Tolkien uh, scholars tell me that the, the ring is a symbol of domination. The ring is a symbol of power through domination. Uh, the use of earthly power, the use of force to achieve some end, whether it was good, whether it was bad. Uh, and the, the, in this case, for sure, What he's saying is, and what the Bible says, is that the ends never justify the means because they can't. The ends can't justify the means because the means always overwhelm the ends with its own sin and corruption. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying 
two things, one obvious, one not so obvious. The first is the obvious one. He says on 50, verse 52, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, the secular version of that, you know, has been live by the sword, become live by the sword, die by the sword, which means basically that if you are a violent man, you will, you will meet a violent end, right? I'm not sure that's what Jesus meant when he said this, right? Is Jesus going to take a moment in the middle of the beginning of the passion and offer Peter a pithy saying on, on, on violence? I don't think that's what he's doing. I think it's much deeper than that. I think he's talking, this is the beginning of the passion. He is about to accomplish God's eternal plan and Peter's taking another way to accomplish it. And so he's saying, essentially, using force to bring the kingdom will always fail. You cannot build the kingdom with domination. You try to build the kingdom with power and with domination it will corrupt it and bring it to its own end. And a not so obvious thing he says is this. Scripture always uses a great economy of words. It doesn't tell us things for no reason. And yet it tells us in detail. We get from other gospels that it was Peter, right, who drew the sword. And we get from the gospels together that what happened was Peter cut off the servant's right ear. Why does it give us that detail? Why is it telling us that he cut off his right ear? Well, Paul says elsewhere, the Bible says elsewhere, that faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And I think what the Holy Spirit, what God's superintending that whole situation is showing us and recording for us is that we are called to be persuasive and to persuade the world. But the minute we turn that corner from persuasion to coercion, it's that the world can't even hear us anymore. They can't even hear us. I was read, read one commentator who is like thinking through the issues of, of Christianity in America, and he made the charge, he said that essentially evangelical Christianity has ceased to be the great spiritual movement it once was and has now become essentially an ethnocentric political power block that is more interested with protecting its own privileges and powers in the culture than anything else. I don't know if that's fair or not, but you know, what should strike us is that that's what everybody thinks. Whether it's true or not, that's what people think of the evangelical church now. And that should give us pause. That should at very least cause us to slow down for a minute and say, why would people think that about us? Rather than just dismissing it, shoving it under the rug, calling them Marxists, doing whatever it is we normally do when we're charged with some sort of criticism, it would be wiser for us to slow down and say, why, why would people think that about us? Now let's contrast that second point. Second point is this, the way of the cross is a greater power. The way of the cross is a greater power. Speaking, since we're speaking of force, martial arts skills, I thought we should have a quote from Bruce Lee. 
this is one of my favorite, probably the most famous quote that Bruce Lee is, is known for. Uh, his his, his uh, description of being like water, where he says, you must, you must be like water. You must be shapeless. You must be formless like water. When you pour water in a cup, it becomes the cup. When you pour water in a bottle, it becomes the bottle. Water can drip and it can crash. Become like water, my friend. What does, he, what does he mean by that? Well, he noticed, if you read the backstory on the quote, he noticed that he would train sometimes by, by punching into the water. And he, he realized that no matter how hard he hit that water, he could never hurt it. The water would instantly assume the shape of the form of his fist. And yet at the same time, he realized that that same water had leveled mountains. It had shaped Yosemite Valley. It had created the Grand Canyon. It was this great power, and yet it seemed to be weak and yielding and submit itself to anything that touched it, and yet it was wildly powerful. And so that was his, you know, part of his ethos. But I think we have a lot to learn from that, from what he's trying to say. It applies to what we're talking about. Jesus did not lack power. Amen? That we get from John's gospel that a Roman cohort came out to arrest Jesus. That's 600 hardened, battle-hardened Roman soldiers along with a little, you know, with some temple guard and some other people. That's why it says swords and clubs. The swords, hardened soldiers, the clubs, ragtag crew that kind of came along with them, right? Jesus did not lack power. Favorite part in John's gospel? Jesus asked them, who do you seek? They ask, say, Jesus is Nazareth. And he says two words. He says, I am. He speaks the memorial name of God. And 600 battle-hardened Roman soldiers hit the deck. And so he asks them again, who do you seek? What's he doing there? He's just flexing, right? Just so we know what's up here. Just so you all have this straight. Just so we would know. And so he says 12 legions of angels, right? That's more than 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels versus 600 Roman soldiers. He's saying the power disparity is so insanely great, it's not even worth talking about. So that's not it. It's not that he lacked power. It's that he had a greater power at his disposal. And that power was the power of love acting through faith. Now, we mean love, a biblical definition of love is self-sacrifice for the good of the other. And by faith, I mean that element of faith where you, where you trust. We trust in, 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 we trust in the completed work of Jesus. Jesus fully entrusted himself to the Father and his protection. Uh, and so, in love, Jesus' entire life was a demonstration, was, a, was an act of self-sacrificial love from the moment of conception where he descended from all of his glory in heaven to incarnate, to be in the belly of Mary and go through everything that human beings go through and to live a perfectly righteous life on earth and to be in complete and perfect obedience to the Father uh, was an act of love for us as much as enduring the shame of the cross 
and all of this from before the foundation of the world, the scriptures he said must be fulfilled. What's he talking about? He's talking about the whole of the Old Testament just leading up to this event where the whole, the centerpiece of human history is about to be accomplished. All the prophets speaking of who Jesus would be, what he would accomplish on the cross as our high priest offering himself up as the perfect and unblemished sacrifice for our sin, liberating us from the the pains of death and hell forever was an act of divine love for us, taking on his own justice in that as well. And, and through faith, right? Jesus entrusted himself perfectly to the Father. He, he understood the plan. He knew what was happening and he entrusted himself not to take up his own power, not to take up angelic power, not to take up any, you know, no matter how good those may seem to us, he had a, a mission to accomplish, to go through the cross, to submit himself and entrust himself to the Father's will in that. No matter how painful or distressing it was going to be, he entrusted himself to that plan and he entrusted himself to the power of God. He entrusted himself to God to protect him. He refused to protect himself. He refused to take up force. He refused to use any of those other means at his disposal to protect himself from harm. Instead, he trusted that God would protect him as he stayed obedient to the plan, to God's will. Even though it cost him, right? I mean, I know, listen, I know when, uh, when we talk about clearly Jesus on the cross cries out, quote Psalm 22, uh, and he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? He has been separated from the love and the presence of the Father for the first time ever, and that would be crushing. But it also, the last line, when I was reading through this, the last line just like killed me, you know? He just committed himself to doing right. He committed himself to entrusting himself to the Father's plan. He had committed himself to trusting in God's power to protect him. And what's the very next thing that happens? All the disciples left him and fled. So look, Jesus is the only man ever who was in perfect submission to God's plan and power. He was like water. He moved with the will of the Father without any resistance. And in that great power, he crushed the kingdom of Satan. And he created a whole new kingdom for us to be in, for us to worship him, for him to have a people. A whole new world he created through that power. And so that, that reflecting on that, is called, I have this, this, I call it the Bruce Lee prayer that I've like developed over time where I pray that. I pray, God, I pray that you would allow me. And this, is, this comes out of the petition in the Lord's Prayer where it says, you know, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the shorter catechism, it says that we would know, super important, 
part and do the will of God even as the angels in heaven. Meaning that we're praying and asking God the intent of that. Is we're asking God that we would know of God's will and that we would be able to do it even as the angels are able to do that. No, right? In this world, in this age, that is never going to happen perfectly. But we can strive for that. And so I, I kind of turn that prayer into praying, God, make me like water. Help me to move with your will without any resistance, completely entrusting myself to you and what you will do through me, no matter how painful, no matter how hard, no matter how scary, uh, no matter how terrifying it may look, let me know that you have me, that you are protecting me, and that I can move forward and be a clear channel for your work and your action in the world. That's prayer that's came out of that. So, wrapping up one and two, sin always corrupts the power of domination and the power of control and force will always overshadow the gospel message so that people can't even hear us. Uh, and love and faith is a greater power that begets love and faith. And so what does this all mean for us? Third point, it means that the way of the cross empowers the gospel. The way of the cross empowers the gospel. So there's a, you know, the popular saying, what would Jesus do? Sometimes that's a great thing to say and to think about, right? Jesus, we are called to be like Jesus, but there's always the, there's always the ever important caveat in that, right? That you, there's a lot of things Jesus would do that you cannot do. Or a lot of things Jesus did that you cannot do. You are, we are not, and you are not Jesus, right? Only Jesus was the God man. Only he was able to accomplish the work of salvation. Uh, and so on. And yet, there's still something in this that's a message for us, right? Jesus is teaching this to Peter. This is the last thing he, before the crucifixion that he, he gets to teach the disciples. And he's teaching this to Peter, taking this moment to teach him as the leader of the church. He's about to be Peter, who's, you know, the guy like the only really opens his mouth long enough to take one foot out and put the other one in. Peter is about to lead the early church. And so Jesus takes this minute to teach him this. What is he trying to teach us, right? Well, the obvious, the first point I made is that, is that we can't rely on force. We can't rely on worldly powers to reach the world. It just, it blows up. It blows up. Whether that's the Crusades, uh, whether it's, you know, I mean, mega graphic, you know, instances of that in the church. You know, however, they may have been blown up out of proportion or not. There was still a crusade. There was still an inquisition. Uh, there was still forced conversions. There was still, you know, a lot of those awful parts of our history that we need to remember. But it can also be in more subtle ways, right? If we use the, if we use the, if we, use, if we flex and form cohorts to flex our political muscle to try and force pagans to live like Christians while we ourselves live like pagans, the irony is not lost on our critics. Uh, and it nullifies. It nullifies the gospel in the world. People cannot even hear us. 
So that's what we're called to do, right? But here's the problem. Jesus knew the plan inside and out. And oftentimes, we don't. We don't know the plan. We don't know what God's doing on the big, on the, on the major scale, on the big stage of life. We don't know what God is doing in all these areas of the world, in all these areas of life. We don't know what he's doing with the church. Uh, we just don't know. And so because that's true, we have to trust in what we do know. We have to trust first in what God has revealed, which is our salvation. He's revealed to us that we have, we have been saved by Jesus' finished work on the cross. He's revealed to us that we are being saved as God removes us from the power of sin in our sanctification. And he promises that we will ultimately be saved when the Lord returns. Uh, and that means we also have to trust in the principles that he's revealed. Look, we have been given, it's, you know, like we talked about in the first sermon from 1 Peter, we're called to give an answer. We're called to be really good at being persuasive. That's part of it. We're called to use reason. We're, you know, we're called to reason with people, to be persuasive, to be able to uh, in, give an answer for what we believe and why. That's a big part of it. And we should be down for that, right? But it also says what? We have to do that in an attitude of gentleness and respect. And whenever we do that in an attitude of aggression or contempt, off come the ears. People can't even hear us. And we're called to do everything in love, which is self-sacrificial love for another. Even our enemies, right? Even our enemies. And that, that's an up-close-and-personal kind of love. That's like getting being involved with people in a real way. Sometimes I feel like we kind of hide behind our principles where we say, we're being loving because if we establish our principles in society and in the world, that's the best thing for people. They'll flourish, therefore we're loving them. Okay, that's true, but that's not all of it. There's also a sense where we have to love people up close and personal and be involved in their lives in a way that they know they, that they know that we love them. And most of all, we're to call, called to trust in the power that God has revealed. Uh, it's, man, it's easy enough to trust in the power of God to protect us when things are going good. When things are going well, it's pretty easy to trust in the power of God to protect us and to, to hold to the biblical principles that he's given us to act in. Uh, but there always comes that day. Everybody gets that day, capital D day. Everybody gets the day when something that we cherish is threatened or our very lives are threatened or our way of life is threatened. And, and that's the minute that's the moment when we're tempted to pick up the sword. We can't do it. We have to continue to trust in God's power to protect us, right? Jesus entrusted himself to the Father to protect him. And he went through the whole nine. Suffering all the way through crucifixion, 
And yet God raised him from the dead at the end of that. And he had confidence that God would protect him through that. Most of us are not going to be put to death for our faith. Most of us are going to be challenged in smaller ways, Lord willing. Uh, and so we need, to re we need to remember that when that moment hits, that's the moment we have to remember to not pick up the way of the sword, but to continue in the way of the cross. And if we do that, the Bible promises us, if we hold that line, if we be like water, come what may, it won't be fast, probably won't be pretty, but it will bring in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're called to do. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the beauty of it, the truth of it. Lord, we confess we have, as a church, over the course of history, we have not gotten this right. There are so many things. The whole world is convincing us that there are all sorts of worldly powers that we may pick up and wield for the good of the church. And those are so tempting, especially when we're afraid. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be afraid, to not fear. You tell us over and over and over and over again, do not fear. Do not fear man who can only kill the body. But fear God who has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. That's not a threat. He's saying God has all the power. And we are to trust in his power. So God, we pray that you would help us to do that, that we would be lights in the world, that we would not pick up the sword or the way of the sword. We pray that you would help us to study and show ourselves approved so that we might uh, be lights in the world. We pray that you would help us to cultivate virtue in our lives and to pursue our sanctification so that we would show your power and your goodness in the world. We pray that you would help us to follow that way of the cross no matter what so that your kingdom advanced in the world. We pray, Lord, that you give us power through the Spirit to do this and help us to be as grateful as we ought to be as we entrust ourselves to you fully in Jesus' name.